our series um, of virtual interviews with our leaders of humanity. And today we have the pleasure to welcome Margit Oslo, Emeritus Professor for Organization, Technology and Innovation Management. And the reason why I'm in academia, one can fairly say that because she's my doctoral mother, my academic role model and my mentor. And of course, we are going to do later an even more proper introduction. But before we do this, as usual, I will lead you through the quest for the good organizations and how we place these interviews in it. So, as you know, we are going to have a, a, a lovely introduction in a second. Then we are going to enter our critical dialogue. And in the end, hopefully, we have all learned the art of making a difference. And if I kind of position it in a little bit more broader context, as we will see on the next slide, um, then you see this is part of our quest for the search for the good organizations, which is a heartfelt passion of also my co-host, Otti, whom I forgot to introduce here as well, <laughs> um, to turn our suffering machines, as we call organizations nowadays, into corporations which are buzzing with aliveness, which allow co-creation towards the common good, not only the commons, as we're going to discuss with market probably later, and which are also directed towards their larger eco ecosystem and society. The task is quite bold. I think we are aware of that. And knowledge spans centuries, and that's why we need people like Margit, our leaders for humanity, who have a deep expertise and knowledge who also have, as we believe, practical wisdom because they have been leaders in their own domains as well and have faced the same questions and which have shown that they are also able to step into the role of a citizen and of community ship. And without further ado, I would now suggest that we are um, starting our talk with Margit and I hand over to Otti for the proper introduction. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And again, a very warm welcome, Margit. It's a huge pleasure to have you here. And many of our listeners will already know Margit Osterloh. It's certainly a person who needs very little introduction, uh, for sure, in the German-speaking domains. As a thought leader, as, a, as an academic leader, and as a board member on some of the um, biggest uh, companies in Switzerland, and Margit has, uh, throughout her career, especially her academic career, touched on um, a number of very interesting topics that are relevant for our inquiry across business ethics and governance, gender studies, organizational studies, and wider connotations of management and society in academia. And uh, we will, I'm sure, touch on a number of the more controversial suggestions and sometimes critical suggestions Margaret has been making. And I, I would say from a personal perspective, Margaret, I think the, while reading for many of your publications, one of the things that makes me especially proud to have you on the program today is your courage. I felt that sometimes you have taken risks to speak up in a very critical fashion and making some suggestions and proposals that probably for many of your academic and even kind of uh, political colleagues have been quite new, so to speak. And I think that is something that we are certainly looking out for, critical thinkers and people who can combine an understanding of politics, of the human nature and of, uh, of management science. And of course, the other credentials are on the slide, a director of a, a research institute, an honorary member of the um, German Academic Association for Business Research, 
a visiting professor, an emeritus professor, University of Zurich and University of Basel, and so on. And uh, I think uh, just to tease us into this dialogue, um, some of the things that we really uh, found very, very interesting uh, were your research on CEO incentives. And I think you have been very outspoken sometimes about those and certainly random selection. And I'm sure that is something we will hear more about later. So again, uh, Margit, uh, I'm sure I'm not doing this uh, enough credit, but a warm welcome on behalf of both of uh, Antoinette and myself. Thank you very much for that very friendly introduction. <laughs> Wonderful, but I think um, probably not exactly the right introduction. So the first question, Margit, many listeners will wonder, who is this person beyond the headlines? Who is Margit Osterloh? How would you possibly describe yourself with a few attributes? I'm um, by education a mechanical engineer plus economics, and I think that was an important, uh, important prägung. How to translate that? I think that make me like I'm today. So I'm. I'm uh, in both areas. Uh, I'm accustomed to think uh, like an engineer on the one hand and like a social scientist on the other hand. Uh, I came to, to the academia at a very, I'm, I'm a late girl, so to say. I became a professor when I was 47 because I worked for seven years uh, in a company and then I started to do my PhD. Uh, which meant that I, I, I was a PhD, I think, when I was 38. So, and I think that also uh, had a great had a great impact on on uh, how I'm, I think and how I live. Because, so I'm, I'm a bit proud to say I know about what I'm speaking and writing a little bit more than some other uh, scholars who never had seen a, a company from the inside. So I think this, uh, I'm, I'm, I have a son, so uh, I'm, I was divorced and today I'm married again with Bruno Fai. So I think these are the most important things uh, about me. <laughs> Wonderful, thank you for sharing. Antoinette, yeah. next question to you. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have to ask you this, um, although you have almost already answered that. Um, I think why Otti and I are on this quest, because we are also a little bit in a midlife crisis and believe that the world needs to become better. So I was kind of wondering um, what, if ever you had a midlife crisis, what did it make to you and what was the result of that? I never had a midlife crisis. Ah, <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> never, never. <laughs> Uh, because I started, as I told you, at a late age with my academic career, and I was so so uh, yeah so eager to manage it. In in the beginning, I was very I didn't feel very safe in that uh, job, so I hadn't I had have that no time for midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe building on on that, the the midlife crisis in some will probably suggest to say is a search for a a good life for what it really means to live well. Uh -huh. Looking back at the phases of your life, Margaret, how would you define the good life or a, a life worth living, as Aristotle would have said today? What, what is that for you? Um, the, life I, the life I'm living is the life I ever wanted 
to life. I, I am um, happy to say that I'm a very privileged position. I can do whatever I want. I have a lot of freedom about what I'm writing, what I'm doing. I live in relative wealth, so I can afford the things I, I want to afford too. I don't need a yacht or uh, uh, some brilliance. I don't need this, but I, I love to to have a good life uh, without thinking how can I get, how can how how can I pay uh, what I want to have tomorrow. So this is a very privileged position I have. And I wish that more people could enjoy this life. <laughs> I think that, Antoinette, that sounds a lot like Bill Torbett's notion of the good life is good money, good friends, and above all, good questions. Final question. Yeah, the, 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 the Reihenfolge, how to say? Order. Yeah. Order. The order. Friend. Uh, good friends is the most important thing. <laughs> Very interesting. Bill Tobit was, uh, was advocating good questions to be the first. Yeah, good questions as well. But and I have a bit of the feeling that good questions are very important to you as well, because good, you never good, stop. Good friends <laughs> ask good questions. Ah, okay. Very <laughs> yeah. true. So I, I would um, suggest with that, we dive into our many questions we have for you, because um, we're sure that you are going to help us to answer these. And so maybe um, we start with the first question. And then um, the first question is really, if we look at the landscape and um, try to map good organizations, then we hear such a lot of different terms like conscious capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, ESG, CSR. It becomes very quickly, very confusing. And we were kind of thinking, because you did research in that, you taught it, that you help us a little bit from a business ethics perspective, what really is a good business and whether there are different approaches within business ethics we could have a look at and then kind of try to delineate that more clearly. Uh -huh. uh, to start with, I'm, I grew up uh, with uh, my, my uh, doctoral uh, father was Horst Steinmann, And in, in, at the University of Erlangen-Nürnberg. And he taught me, and I really uh, find this very important about the Habermasian uh, ethics of, of dialogue. And I think this, this is the, the foundation of uh, what I believe is a good company, a company that, uh, that makes it possible that there are uh, structural conditions which allow to a highest degree Uh, this kind of communicative uh, ethical uh, thinking. That's, that's a basic idea. And then we could talk about how to do this. That's a difficult question, but that's, a, that's the basis. That's the ground. And on this market, can I just ask a probably not very clever follow-up question? When, when I looked at Habermas, mm -hmm. it appeared that the idea that through communication processes some ethics would emerge it seemed it would only work under very special conditions. So mm -hmm. it was actually never a certainty that such a, a universal ethic would come about. So is there, is ethics therefore, is a good business therefore ever con contingent, so contextual in a specific area, or is there something like a universal moral standard that we should all adhere to in your, in your reading? I think the universal moral standing is that is, is communication, free communication, 
uh, communication without pressure. But uh, I admire Habermas very much. But in his philosophy, institutions do not play a role. To be honest, they play, don't play any role. And he doesn't think about how institutions must be um, constructed that uh, this is, this is uh, communication, powerless uh, in communication. No, there is no powerless communication, but communication with only, uh, which is not too much, um, um, yeah. It's not unilateral power, but yeah, unilateral. Uh, I think then the problem of organization theories, like I define myself, begins. Absolutely. And I, I was, whilst you, were, whilst you were commenting, I was thinking about Foucault, who would clearly argue that power in dialogic processes has such a strong role. And therefore, I would, I would almost think that um, positing that communication can lead us to a specific form of ethic without realizing the role power plays mm -hmm. is very difficult, isn't it? So we would need to understand the power structure inside the organization very clearly as well to, to help with the communication. Of course, power plays a role. Uh, all these uh, structures we have to think about, uh, they, they uh, entail power. What kind of structures uh, are structural powers? Uh, and therefore, th this is my job. And this was my job to reflect how you can balance power on the one hand and, and uh, free speech on the other hand, I could translate it uh, in, into another vocabulary. I could, could translate it into we have to, we have to, to manage um, uh, the, the uh, spannung, how to translate spannung? The tension. Huh? The tension. Uh, between Gesinnungsethik and Verantwortungsethik, or to say ethics of conviction versus ethics of uh, yeah, responsibility. responsibility. I like better to say ethics of consequences because that's exactly what, what uh, ethics of responsibility means. That behaving in an ethics of conviction way has some, some uh, consequences which are based into the, in, in the nature of the people. And we have to reflect that we have to know many we have to have a high knowledge about how people behave in different situations, uh, which makes them behave like they behave. And we have always to balance these uh, these both sides of uh, yeah of, of of tension. And that's a that's a difficult thing in 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 constructing organization organizational structures, all kinds of institutional structures, by the way, in, in, in organizations as well as in society. I think that's also something we are going to touch later when we are talking about how to organize or operationalize that mm -hmm. in organizations, because of course that is also linked to your work on crowding out, mm -hmm. where that mm -hmm. would be a problem for uh, the convictions yeah. then and um, how then the ethics of responsibility would um, fit in and how they have to look like. So that's going to be hopefully a rich discussion later we have to take up again. But I don't want to leave you off the hook so quickly from the ethical and societal view. Um, because I can remember that long time ago when I was sitting in your lecture series, you were always talking about the honorable businessman. So that stick with me. 
Mm-hmm. And then I um, tried to find out is that still um, alive and kicking. And then I really found it. But I found it quite interesting how they define the honorable businessman today. So the honorable businessman or woman recognizes and takes responsibility for the economic and social order and heeds the principle of equity and good, good faith. Mm-hmm. Um, is that enough? Because, I mean, that would, for instance, also entail that the honorable businessmen could still lobby against regulations. I mean, how do you see that concept in a, is it good or evil perspective nowadays? So, uh, I think we both agree that regulations are important. Uh, It is important how regulations uh, are created, whether this is a democratic way or in, in, in a... A, uh, yeah, a way which is not quite democratic, but uh, gives a, a high degree of self-determination in, inside of companies. So how rules are created, that's the most important thing. You know better than me, uh, then we have uh, different kinds of uh, of, uh, of um, uh, um, fairness, which means procedural fairness, outcome or outcome fairness. And uh, uh, we both probably are convinced that procedural fairness is the most important thing. <laughs> and this should, be, this should be the case inside and outside uh, companies. That means that uh, the decisions uh, are made in a way that are procedural fair. And people uh, believe and feel that is procedural fair. It's a perception in, in the first place. So is there something, Margaret, and sorry, we are, we're a little bit, I wouldn't say lost, but we're still very troubled by the ethical questions. So we're, we are throwing some of our thoughts at you. Apologies. But ethics of conviction, that sounds very close to virtue ethics in my mm. interpretation of what you just said. So it's no. more that we bring the desire to act well in the context of the society we're in mm-hmm. to the table, as opposed to counting utilitarian consequences. And in that context, we would probably all try to create the rules, like you just said, in a fair, procedurally fair fashion. And mm-hmm. therefore, to Antoinette's point, I reckon, if then the Erbare Kaufmann, the honorable merchant, is honorable, Mm-hmm. They would not try to unilaterally influence regulation or government. Is that a fair integration? I'm a bit hesitating because, uh, of course, there are forms of lobbying we we do not we do not like. But I would never say that uh, lobbying is, is in any case a bad thing. There are There is a kind of lobbyism which is acceptable as long as it is controlled, as, it, as long as it is transparent. Then lobbyism in, in, in democracy, lobbyism has its place, definitely. We could speak later about uh, our idea of random selection, which helps to dampen lobbyism. Dampen lobbyism, but it will never disappear, and it it is impossible that it disappears. And I'm I'm a realist. Uh, uh, I'm I'm looking about what what happens in reality, and I'm taking that into account. That means ethics of consequences. 
So that means almost checks and balances. So we need to yes, nurture. Uh, checks and balances is, 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 is a very, uh, very good expression for that. Yeah. So we need to nurture the civic sense of civility almost, of mm -hmm. being part and, and growing mm -hmm. with and within society, but we probably need some safety mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And Antoinette, that sounds very close to your thinking. <laughs> which probably is not a wonder that it's close to my thinking. Um, but then we could maybe develop that a little bit because this is something which sits very squarely in, in it's almost a German take on ethics, a very big one, institutional ethics. Um, mm -hmm. What I can remember about institutional ethics, but that's exactly what you don't mean, but maybe you still can elaborate a little bit more, was that we visited Hohmann, And Hohmann's idea was that we need to design institutions which are proof for even homo economic. Mm -hmm. so that the crooks, which are already there, have no chance to be crooks. That was his idea. Now, obviously, that's not your idea. Um, but if you would develop that a little bit with the theory of control, what type of regulations, be it more changing the price mechanisms, be it more... Um, formal regulations, or even kind of to try to enable peer control from the from the state point of view, would you suggest on that institutional level? First of all, uh, Hohmann's standpoint about the homo economical safe institutions is insofar wrong, as Hohmann doesn't understand nearly nothing about uh, what what we call psychological economics. And that means that people don't behave always like homo economici. They, in some situations, they behave like homo economici, but in, very, in, in many situations, they do not. And we must take into account in our institution building theories under which circumstances people behave in which way. And though we should know many, many, many facts from psychology, social psychology, as you do, that's uh, in particular the work you are doing. So, uh, so, so much uh, to, to, uh, to Hohmann. Your, the next question, in principle, I'm a capitalist. I think capitalism is not the worst institutional order we have. Of course, Uh, I would I would play for a social capitalism for a capitalism which is uh, which is eingebunden uh, 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 embedded in an institutional in, framework in, in, in social institutional framework and and uh, of course we have the idea that this institutional framework must make sure that uh, we have as much individual freedom as we as we could have, and that people are um, incentivized and encouraged uh, to contribute as much as possible to, to common goods. Uh, of course, that's, that's the idea. And am I sure we can do this? One of, later you will ask me about uh, the people I admire most, and my answer would clearly be, Elinor Ostrom, because uh, she did that in a way I really admire. It's so very interesting. I want to, and uh, Antoinette, I'm thinking Paul Adler, when we talk to him, will probably argue the opposite and say, Ooh. capitalism cannot, Paul Adler, 
who I will. Yes, yeah. He, yeah. he will suggest yeah. capitalism cannot be saved, and I think Henry Mintzberg was saying last week that um, certainly any adjectival capitalism, so social capitalism, caring capitalism, conscious capitalism, his books do not really work. We need something which is kind of a, a capitalistic something else, which is much more related to the society that we want. But I mm. think this is a, a very interesting discussion. But Margaret, I want to ask you one, one other thing related to the ethics. How would you measure goodness? And as you just said, you're a capitalist. So what's the role of profit in your definition of what good is in a societal mm -hmm. or business context? Mm -hmm. um, profit is insofar important as we know that the wealthy, the wealthier country is, the more altruistic are its people. Uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm dealing with a, with a problem which is, was very new for me, uh, which means that uh, the preferences of people are changing according to the wealth of a nation and according to the inequality or equality degree of a nation. And what came out is first that uh, people behave more in an altruistic way the richer they are. Secondly, that the preferences of men and women, which I'm, I'm, I'm working in gender, in gender economics, the preferences of um, men and women, the gap of preferences between men and women enlarges the richer country is. This was really, this struck me. This really struck me. And I'm doing uh, at the moment that the research, uh, how, uh, how to explain this fact. But what I want to, to emphasize is wealth is necessary that people become more altruistic. And therefore, as institutional e economists, we have to care for wealth and profit-making we need for, for, for becoming wealthier. Very easy. Is that not, is that, so are there not a number of assumptions under that? One is the, this, this famous, if the water rises, then kind of everybody will be better off. And I think someone like Piketty would probably argue that actually is not necessarily true. We've seen for the last 20 years an increase in GDP per capita, but at the same time, most of the normal workers have actually not benefited from that increase in GDP at country level. And then secondly, that's I think... That's not true. That's not true. That's Gone? true in some countries, UK, uh, quite clear, United States, quite clear. It's not true for Switzerland. And therefore, my opinion is that the institutional framework we have in Switzerland is, is a better one than in most other countries. And we should reflect... Uh, which, what, what makes a difference? So in Switzerland, inequality has not risen after taxes. After uh, taxes, uh, uh, that's, that's quite clear, but that's part of the system. And I think if we look at research, we see a correlation with the Gini coefficient. So I think the question is, is um, inequality increasing with an increase in wealth? And I think you're probably pointing to the fact if inequality is not rising, as is the case in uh, or certainly a number of European countries, those altruistic effects could come to bear, exactly like you say. But my second question would be related to uh, Stefano Zamani's criticism of uh, what he called the mixed economy model. So the, the typical Samuelson style, um, we've got a capitalistic market system, and then we've got institutions that will correct and redistribute wealth. Mm -hmm. And 
he would probably argue it's not altruism that we want. We want a, an economy that in itself is creating better role, better employment and more wealth through the activities rather than redistribution. What, what's your view on that? Of course, uh, um, a redistribution is the second best way. That's for sure. The best way is that people earn their own money and can be proud of the money they earn for themselves. That would be the better way. And 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 uh, 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 what we have to do to, to help people to earn a good salary is to educate them, to give them as much education as as we could. That's that's for sure. That's for sure. And we have to create institutions who help. Uh, poor people, people with a bad socioeconomic uh, background, really to to reach uh, this state. Yes. Well, I'm I'm just like to dig a little bit deeper because uh, we can see with the example of Switzerland, we have high happiness figures. So um, as and the other things you have explained us. So I think there is this correlation clearly between more equality and wealth on the one side and happiness on the other side. But if I look at Swiss companies, we still have a number of Swiss companies which, which produce enormous negative externalities, for instance, by still laying off people or more clearly um, kind of producing environmental costs. Um, I do believe that we also have in Switzerland our cases of wrongdoings. So I think the analysis of Henry Mintzberg that there is a certain case for corporate ir irresponsibility rather than responsibility also holds for Switzerland. So I just want to throw the ball back at you. What should we do in these cases? Is it also a matter of kind of we need to teach business ethics in universities and then they will become better? Can we change something in this institutional ethic frameworks in order to prevent that? Because this is where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. What's your view on this? I think, uh, I always think that we, could, we, we should look on the framework, on the institutional framework, because uh, frameworks have a lot of advantages. Frameworks uh, uh, or should be created that they, uh, they equally... Um, um, they are equal for, for, for everybody, that's one thing. Secondly, within this framework, you can, to a certain extent, but to a high extent, autonomously. And these are two very, very important uh, preconditions. So direct interventions in most cases are, are yeah, the worst thing. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to internalize, for instance, external um, effects. Of course, of course, okay. by prices, by CO, uh, CO2 prices and so on. That is always, in, 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 in principle, the best idea. But of course, there are, they are uh, different rules at different times. So, uh, for example, in Corona times, we had very, very special, very direct uh, regulations and and we, there was no way, way out. Maybe one could do it so one way or the other a little bit uh, differently. But on a whole, I think Switzerland managed it quite well because uh, the rules were supported by the public, uh, by the public uh, meaning. So the participation, again, is really important. Yes. I just have one more question, Oti, um, because I still try to kind of get... Um, 
through the uh, at the problem. Um, is it then on the other side because you also say you are a convinced capitalist? Maybe a good idea to to start with rankings of ethical companies, and then we will have are going to have more ethical companies. No, rankings are in nearly every case. Maybe without sports, but I don't understand uh, much about sports, so I should be silent on on this issue. I think uh, rankings have always negative side uh, side effects, which means that people try to manipulate, uh, like to to look only on the factors which are measurable, uh, and we know very well that sometimes the issues which are not very good measurable are the more important ones. So <clears throat> rankings in nearly every case are a bad thing. What is, what is, uh, might be better is uh, awards. Awards are different from rankings. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I think that was another thing we discussed with Stefan Zamani and he would claim exactly the same. I'm just trying to get my, so what we've said, the, the goodness has a lot to do with communications and creating the, um, the framework for yeah. allowing participative rule setting and in that context being very aware of power dynamics. Then mm -hmm. I think you said creating rank. <laughs> it's what was most perfectly as you uh, said it perfectly. Yeah, thank you. Then I'll, I'll try to build. So the, the rankings and we've seen your writings and some of your um, teaching on rankings, of course, um, are not necessarily the right way. Profit still plays a role in enabling that creativity in a capitalistic system that raises the level for everybody, if that, again, is embedded in an institutional framework. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, you're pointing out the importance of almost equality of access, certainly in terms of education, which I think is certainly something that will resonate um, also with, uh, with Paul's view. I wanted to go a little bit on to CSR. So this, uh, this corporate social responsibility movement, and uh, we will talk to Ed Freeman in a few weeks. So I just wonder, mm. if we crunch it up, the last 50 years of CSR, what's your perspective? Is the world, so maybe A, has it worked? Are we in a better place today than before? And what are the lessons learned? And then I will talk, then I will ask you about stakeholder theory so we can take your, mm -hmm. your analysis to Ed when we speak to him. I'm not so sure that CSR was really successful. It could be the case that capitalistic forces are much more forceful. For example, if I uh, go along the streets, I see advertisement of companies like, I think, Shell Company or some oil company. Uh, they, they make advertisement that we see CO2 um, uh, taxes. They behave in an in a, uh, uh, environment-friendly way. They, they, that's obviously greenwashing. That's quite, quite... But is greenwashing so bad? If it helps... Shell to to uh, to be to become a better company in the sense that they earn, they make profits. That's for sure. They have to make profit. But on the other hand, they have to care for environment more than they did it before because otherwise they get a bad reputation. So what's wrong about it? I'm I think greenwashing is is, is not so bad because it gives an incentive to the companies to look at issues they didn't uh, look at at before. But is there not 
I'm going back to your distinction between ethics on conviction and ethics of consequences. And talking about Shell, I think the, um, the court case that happened in the Netherlands a few months back was very interesting because mm -hmm. the court, and I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, but I looked at the, judge, uh, the judgment uh, that was made, and basically the conviction of Shell was on the basis of an institute in the Dutch legal code, which mm -hmm. requests of every citizen and corporate citizen to take care of the society and including future generations. And based on that principle, Mm -hmm. Shell was convicted. So mm -hmm. that for me sounds like an ethics of conviction. So we are all part of this. We have to take care of each other. Whereas what uh, when we say greenwashing could also be good, that for me looks more in my experience as well as a company is trying to comply with a deontological set of rules. And in reality, we've got a lot of research that shows that the predisposition to behave ethically is reduced whenever people go into this compliance mindset. So how do you bring those aspects together? If greenwashing is just, I go with the regulation, but I don't really take care of the planet, could it not just then also perpetuate an immorality, what Antoinette called the kind of um, social irresponsibility of corporations? It, it could be the case, but there is uh, the role of, of the press, for example, which comes comes in. The public opinion, the Fridays for Future movement. We have a lot of social movements who are very active and are very sensible uh, for the wrong type of, of greenwashing. Uh, so I think it, it works quite well. And by the way, uh, the principles of the ethics of, of conviction, they are changing. It's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, um, uh, yeah, it, the world is changing. What we behave is acceptable um, today, which was, uh, or which was acceptable in former times and is no longer acceptable today. Take the, the question of slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, until the 19th century, slavery, slavery was, was accepted. Today, we can't believe it, but it is the case. Or look at uh, countries uh, like like Afghanistan, where women uh, have no rights, it seems to be acceptable there. It's not acceptable with us. So we have to take that into account, whether we like it or not. But what people behave is fair and and and, and according to the rules they want to live with. That changes. I comp I mean, the, I couldn't agree more. Yet on the other hand, that could lead to a very dang dangerous cultural and, and contextual relativism, which ultimately leads to nihilism, because of course we have also got the capitalistic context that is constantly pushing the boundaries on what is allowed. And I think, I mean, I don't know what would be your commentary on that Raiffeisen CEO case that came up in Switzerland two weeks ago when I was there with Antoinette. So the Raiffeisen CEO seemed to have uh, received 14 million annual salary aside from the transparently mm -hmm. um, what was it, uh, the, the salary that was officially shown. Right? So these type of behaviors certainly are unacceptable or... Of course, uh, uh, it's Vincent's uh, uh, house, uh, Antoinette. Erin Vincent's. Huh? Erin Vincent's. Yeah, Pirin Vincent's, yeah. That's a clear case uh, of, of hubris. We can talk about that later. Uh, and and uh, that's a problem about these star heroes, uh, which are created partly by the press, partly by them, by themselves, because they can profit from it. And there was no 
no institutional form of controlling uh, these these guy and we have to look for institutions which exactly do that yeah. and uh, um, uh, uh, lotteries uh, focal lotteries would be uh, would be an instrument to to hinder these kind of of abuse. He's a typical example, a very typical yeah. example of of, of hybrids. Mm-hmm. Um, we so, can do something against it. Yeah, and I think we go over to the next section. Yeah. Um, but what we do before is just a quick wrap up um, because what I heard, and I don't know, um, we have heard already quite a nice summaries, but. I heard um, that institutional ethics is extremely important. So we need the right framework, institutional framework around it, which should be preferably enabling and not coercive rules, which should be fair, that is also participatively designed rules. Um, I heard also that social movements, in your opinion, are very important. So here you come very close to this balanced society that Henry has in his mind. And they're important for two things. They can look for further regulation. They can lobby for further regulations. But I also heard you that they are also bringing up new ethical topics. Mm -hmm. So like now we are, for instance, uh, talking about colonialism. What does this mean later? So there is um, also this effect, which is very important. And I would just like to also draw back to the very first thing you were saying. There would be also a universal ethics um, we can all um, define if we would follow the dialogic ethics that Habermas has mm-hmm. uh, once lined out, if only we knew how to implement that. Is mm-hmm. that kind of a fair summary? How to implement that uh, with institutions, we are we we have to reflect about. That's what I told you in the beginning. As far as I know, Habermas has no ideas about uh, institutions who really can enable uh, this uh, this kind of ethics. So, and I think that is what I'm taking away from the first section as well. And uh, I, I'm I'm looking at uh, Marcus Gabriel, who wrote who wrote a very interesting book on. Um, moralischer Fortschritt in dunklen Zeiten, so moral progress in dark times. Mm-hmm. And he's arguing for something that he calls moral facts, where mm-hmm. he says, um, kind of killing your parents is never a good idea. So in reality, whilst there's cultural or, or contextual connotations, there are certain things that we should all agree on that are moral or immoral. Mm-hmm. And I think my challenge with contextual ethics is that the current, the capitalistic system is creating a hedonic treadmill, you were just talking about hubris in, in, in individuals and immaturity in, in leaders, especially male leaders. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm still troubled whether we can just through better dialogue uh, resolve the challenges that we have. Because arguably, mm-hmm. in countries like the United States, what we are living is not good. Henry pointed out that on every relevant statistics in the last 20 years, we're going into the wrong direction. So I guess we need some sort of reset before mm-hmm. positive communications can come in. But that is um, what's on my mind after this kind of very interesting first section. Thank you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Antony, we go on to the second, which is about organizations. And um, again, given that you have the privilege of uh, knowing Margaret's teachings a lot better, do you want to kick us off? Mm-hmm. Yes, gladly, because we already started. And I think uh, a long-running topic of yours is corporate governance. 
-hmm. And before we go into the hubris, because of course that's one of your big um, accomplishments to look at this much more clearly, I would like to tease out a little bit of your experiences on boards and what went well or is a good um, aspect of the board and where you believe that boards at present have really limitations and cannot do what they are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, we have two different kinds of board systems. Uh, the German ones, where there are inside and outside directors, which has uh, advantages and disadvantages, and and uh, the, the Swiss and the uh, and the English, uh, UK, and also American board system, where you have mostly inside uh, directors, and I, I think uh, I to be clearly, I prefer the German systems that there are outside directors um, and that there are directors which are elected by the employees. Mm -hmm. This comes, is, is, comes closest to the idea of corporate governance, uh, which I believe is, is good. And, and the background is that uh, quite clear, shareholder capitalism is not a good form of capitalism because it's not... Uh, correct to say that uh, only the capital owners should be represented at the highest uh, level. Uh, um, and the reason why is that it's, it's not only the shareholders who invest firm specific. The idea uh, who owns a company is that the, the owner of the company is the person who is dependent on the residual claim of the mm -hmm. company on the profit. Mm -hmm. uh, which cannot be uh, contracted. And in former times, people believe, and that's the idea behind shareholder capitalism, that only shareholder capitalists do invest in the company in a way which cannot be contracted ex ante. Today, we know that also employees and also customers and so on, they investing as well in the company, in particular their knowledge, their tacit knowledge and so on. And this is the reason why today, I think, the pure shareholder capitalism is out mm -hmm. because the more and more uh, tacit knowledge or knowledge in general and tacit knowledge in particular is important for the competitive advantage of a company, the more these, these investors called stakeholders uh, uh, become important and they should be represented at the top level of the, of the company. That's the, the, that's the first thing. The second thing is how to organize it. That's a different, uh, different. No, no, that's a, not a different. That's a related question, but it's, it's it's a very difficult one. But in principle, this is a background of my idea about uh, corporate governance. Unfortunately, not many people in in Switzerland uh, or in the United States do share these views. With academics, there are some. Mm -hmm. People who share it, but in with practitioners, yeah, they don't believe in this kind of of uh, of share of uh, of uh, corporate governance. Yes. So I mean, I read that you that's also a suggestion to make uh, stakeholder management operationalable in this way. Mm -hmm. We're talking about these two representative bodies. So I guess one representative body would be the more the inside directors, and the other one would be really with this. Mm -hmm. elected um, stakeholders and workers. 
Yeah, but of course, the interesting question is, I mean, you, you say that, but I mean, how to get there is the question, because I think these ideas have been around not only from your side, although you're kind of mm -hmm. bringing them much more forward, but they have been around for 30 years. What mm -hmm. can we do in order to um, bring that into corporate governance? As a Swiss person, my first idea, idea would uh, be to make a referenda. Mm -hmm. I'm very curious about the referenda we will have in November about the so-called Justiz Initiative. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and in this referenda, the idea is that the highest uh, judges should be um, elected or selected uh, with a party random selection. And so this is a different question than corporate governance. But uh, uh, and and I'm, I'm yeah I'm sure it will not be it will not be accepted. But uh, the discussion about random selection will will be fueled, and that will make a, a difference. So I think or, or hope that in let me say five or ten years, um, the the issue uh, of uh, of random selection will become much more popular than it is today. It starts. Uh, you probably you know that the Swiss National Foundation partly applies focal random selection, and that's that's a great breakthrough because uh, the Swiss National Foundation that's uh, the sci most scientific organization you could imagine, and if such a, an organization introduces a very new system of of uh, selection, then this is a good ground for for moving forward in that direction. So. I think one has to be um, to be patient. To be patient, such big ideas, accepting lotteries as a, as a principle of of government is so revolutionary. So it has a long history, as you probably know. But presently, it's so revolutionary that we should be, we should be patient. And uh, to, uh, yeah, uh, I'm hopefully in in five or ten years uh, things have. In, 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 in this direction, hopefully. Yeah. But we can take that, of course, and now use it also for corporate governance because indeed you have brought that in for corporate governance as well. So maybe you want to explain our uh, viewers what is all what it's all about and why you would also suggest it to use it for corporate governance reasons. Yeah, the main... Margaret, I think we need to explain what sortition is. I think uh, many people will now be looking with big eyes and say, random what? So I think you need to <laughs> yeah. explain briefly what it is. Partition <laughs> is another expression for random selection uh, and <clears throat> uh, or, or lotteries. And uh, lotteries uh, are, have been applied for, for thousands of years, for example, in ancient, ancient Athens. Uh, Aristoteles, by the way, was uh, he thought that uh, lotteries are the only real form of democracy because their uh, equality is a hundred percent. To be honest, in Athens, slaves and women were excluded. So uh, there you again can see what zeitgeist uh, uh, means. But among male uh, adults, uh, uh, the government was selected by lotteries because uh, lotteries have a lot of advantages. Uh, for example, that uh, voices which otherwise are suppressed, yeah, have a voice. And that's important thing for, for the applicants to apply uh, um, 
uh, uh, random selection in corporate governance because the stakeholders, they, we have many, many stakeholders. We have much more stakeholders than we have shareholders. It could be if it's the, the employees are 5,000 plus uh, uh, customers, it, yeah, it can sum up to 10 or yeah, 20,000 of stakeholders. So how to represent 20,000 stakeholders? Uh, you could do it by election, but election have a lot of disadvantages uh, as well, uh, in particular that only these ones who have the biggest uh, and often and uh, speak the loudest uh, are the representatives. So random selection uh, is, is represents uh, a really uh, represent, representation in the statistical sense. And that's important uh, thing. So that outsiders, uh, newcomers, women, uh, foreigners, migrants has a chance to have a voice at the, at the highest level. And that's the idea. I think it's very interesting. The two thoughts that come up for me. One, if I understood it correctly, in the Athenian society, certainly the pool was based on volunteers. So people would actually say, okay, I'm willing to come into this. It wouldn't necessarily be the full population, but people would be allowed to say, do I want to be part of the pool or not? And secondly, there seemed to have been a principle that certain roles in the governments were declared technical, like the military role, for example. Oh, and you're those, very informed, yes, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, and those roles were not up for sortition. So there's almost like, it, maybe then, again, talking about your point on institutions, I mm. think we would need to, one, ensure that we have, that we make roles available so that we say, actually, let's train up people so they can step into these roles and make, let's make the roles more generic so they're not so technical, mm. which arguably at the highest levels of an enterprise is probably the case. They become less mm. and less technical in my experience. Right? But secondly, I think there is a necessity to invest in the capabilities of people to be part of a democratic society almost. And is that not something that today is lacking? Where I think, uh, again, I can't remember, Antoinette, it was either Henry or Paul describing that, um, uh, oh, I know Bill Torbett was talking about how people use their leisure. Mm -hmm. And in this isolationist society, of course, yeah, uh, yeah. describing the United States, people are spending their leisure sitting in front of the television, so to speak, and, and, and eating popcorn. And that is a very dark view of what people do and hopefully not correct. But mm -hmm. is in an individualistic society not the desire to participate a real problem? So would we not need to start there at the same time? First of all, the member of the, of, uh, the board at the moment are also not always very well informed. And this I can report from my own experience. That's the first thing. This is true, by the way, also for politicians. They are not always as well informed as we would expect. That's the first thing. The second is, thing is we know from social psychology and from, uh, from an article I always cite uh, from Matthias Benz and uh, Alois Stutzer, who found out that if you give people the opportunity to participate in, in decisions, they inform themselves. So this is a virtuous circle. And the people in the United States, they are sitting lazy in, in front of their TV because they have nothing to say. 
why should they inform themselves? This crazy system, uh, uh, yeah, doesn't give them any opportunity to, to really participate in important uh, decisions. That's a, that's a background. And we, that's a very important principles we use uh, in educating children. Today, we know you have children to give a say, and then they inform themselves. And the same is true for adults. And I think that's exactly what we've seen in the Athenian society. Suddenly people realized, I can make a difference, I'd better get myself up to speed. So I think you're probably very right that we might need to start with changes in the institution. And Antoinette, I'm thinking again, I've forgotten the name, the gentleman at University College London, who is proposing institutional democracy as a, as a modification of democracy to have much greater representation. I think, Margaret, we will, we will probably... Is it Collins? That could very well be the case. I think we will pick your suggestions up with him because I know he was looking at a, at a, at a framework. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know whether referenda were part of it, but I think it will be very interesting. And liquid democracy, I think, is another one on our list. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask you one more question on, you just said even politicians or board members are not very well informed at times. And you have, of course, as many people I'm sure know, been part of boards like Swiss Post and, and other big companies. There has been a lot of debate in the United Kingdom about the role of board members. Because the question is, can anyone with a large complex organization as an external ever be fully informed or informed enough to truly be held accountable for the direction of the firm? And I would suggest from my own experience, I mean, I had hard times as an internal to be fully aware of what was going on and, and, and check compliance and, and uh, that all, everything was going in the right direction. So I cannot imagine that a board member could actually play that role truly um, successfully. What, what is your experience and, and what is your suggestion? In general, I, I agree. And therefore, it's, it's so important that... On the board, there's a, a combination of internals and externals. Uh, uh, in particular, the German form of co-determination, uh, I really like it's, it's a, a very good corporate uh, governance system because there are people from uh, on the basis of the, of the corporation and they can tell you uh, what happens at, uh, at the shop floor. That's very important. So you have to look for institutions that really mix up people from 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 uh, internal people as well as external people external peoples are always also sometimes very important because they can bring in fresh new ideas that the internal internals are are uh, a little bit uh, narrowed in in, in in their mind so i think uh, diversity in general is is a very important thing uh, at, at the board. Of course, the German code determination system is not a perfect one. We now have a big scandal with a, with a German, uh, uh, with, with a code determination or the director of, uh, of, uh, of the employees with VW. By the way, he, he has the same name as me, Bernd Osterloh. Uh, I'm not, it's not a relative of me. He <laughs> earns 750,000 a year, so that's a yeah. big scandal. Uh -huh. So uh, VW, uh, coup determination is not a good example for German coup determination system. But uh, I think uh, in, in general, it, it works much better. Mm -hmm. And not for morality, by the way, either, right? And then the fact that nobody has ever gone to prison for no. the scandals in Volkswagen, I would suggest is a bit of a joke. 
but um, that's my private opinion. But um, yeah, never can tell me that uh, the Betriebsrat Bernd Ursulu didn't know anything. That kind of be. For 10 years? I mean, I'm sorry. Then, then they should go because they didn't know, right? If you're so uninformed, you're not adding a lot of value. I think, anyway. I, think I have to cut you now. Otherwise, we get in troubles if we are talking like this in an official um, plenary. Um, but I'm just trying, uh, again, to summarize a little bit because then we can look at your suggestions how to institutionalize that in organizations because at, at the end you did most of your research a very long time in organizations so i heard what we need in order to have kind of an institutional democracy in organizations is to enable participation mm -hmm. we have to take care of the power um, discussion so um, more power over rather than just power um, power with, um, we heard that um, self-determination is important. And I think in an earlier article, you said we also need confrontation with social problems and conflicts. So I guess that was overcoming defensive routines so that we really open can discuss. Mm -hmm. And we need to learn more from this confirmation. I, I just mm -hmm. try to kind of summarize what you have written and told us today. Now, what does this mean exactly for organizations? Is there an archetype where you see this is more likely to happen? If we go inside um, organizations, how can I organize this? Mm -hmm. in, in, in general, as uh, in my organization theory uh, lecture, I always plea uh, for overlapping groups. Which is a which is an, uh, a mixture between hierarchy on the one hand, there is a hierarchy, and on the other hand, within groups, uh, there could be a high degree of participation. And I think in gen, one can realize this idea more or less in different under different circumstances, uh, but this is an idea in general, which uh, which uh, is in between the tension of hierarchy on the one hand, and we cannot have a, a company without any form of hierarchy on and, and self-determination on the other hand. So you, I you, think you, this is very, just one quick question, Antoinette, because um, of course we're coming straight from the Renden Hagi uh, Open Talk series last week and uh -huh. Haya, the uh, white good manufacturer in China, um, suggesting a Chinese model of organization, which I think would um, would challenge your notion that we cannot have that um, ambivalence between autonomy and control without hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And uh, Haya has created 4,000 micro-enterprises where basically the teams that you mentioned have full autonomy, especially over recruitment, over pay mm -hmm. and salaries, and mm -hmm. over, over decision-making within a context of uh, a few norms that are pressed for at the organization level. One is you have to deliver at least one and a half times the sector profit. And secondly, mm -hmm. you have to make use in a preferential way of internal services, unless you can, can um, explain that someone else is better suited. So HR, finance, and other uh, distributed functions. And that is a very interesting model because it really pushes the entrepreneurship in the company whilst maintaining cohesion, and they have now managed also to embed external companies into ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Of course, the big discussion is, does this only work in a Confucian-style Chinese collectivist mm -hmm. context where there's enough mm -hmm. balancing? Mm 
or could we transport this into European companies and American companies? And that was the big debate. Mm-hmm. But I'm just wondering, so in a nutshell, after all of this, mm-hmm. is there not a, a form of um, um, organ- organizing where mm-hmm. hierarchy becomes less relevant? Of course, we could think of, uh, of companies which are organized more or less hierarchical. But as soon as you have central services, for example, HR services, or controlling services, or marketing services, uh, then you have economies of scale to realize uh, economies of scale, or, or you would like to, to realize economies of scale, a central uh, HR uh, division, for example, uh, works better than a decentralized HR or a centralized controlling, a completely decentralized controlling is not possible. So these are, so to say, common goods, which which are to be created and, and uh, from which every member of the company in, in the decentralized units can profit. But to organize these centralized uh, services, this means a, a certain kind of uh, of hierarchy because uh, you have uh, you have to, to uh, make sure that in in every uh, department, for example, the controlling rules are uh, applied in the same way. Otherwise, uh, there is no controlling. And as soon yes as you have decentralized common rules, then a form of hierarchy is inevitable. Maybe, maybe I can take that up because you are now also starting to talk about the corporate commons. So, for instance, mm-hmm. you could also add absorptive capacity, yes. another corporate commons, or some, some um, degree of shared implicit knowledge is a corporate commons. Mm-hmm. Now, you've written a lot about what it takes to organize the corporate commons in organizations. And maybe we can kind of try to frame it from this side because... Indeed, this is a big discussion I have with Otti also. I always say it's difficult to uh, really produce corporate commons in that kind of setting. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, there are to to, um, uh, realize corporate governments, there are in principle two different ways. The one is power, hierarchy, Mm -hmm. and and, and the other is uh, uh, is, uh, Elinor Ostrom has taught us co-determination in the small units. This, this means that uh, uh, the, the, the bigger the company is, the, uh, the more difficult is it to really manage this in, in different small, small units. So um, corporate, uh, it, or, or no, I should it say, say otherwise. Uh, on, on the one hand, there is power. Uh, it could be it could be managed from from top down. How uh, how let me say human resources uh, should work. But also you could imagine uh, that there is a strong spirit in the company who tells you about the principle of corporate governance, the bottom up. And again, you have to look for 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 uh, for a mixture of both principles, which are which you can set into your company. You couldn't do it, you shouldn't do it never in, in, the, in the hierarchical top-down way only. You probably will not succeed in, in doing it uh, solely in the top, uh, in the bottom-up way. It will cost a lot of transaction costs. So uh, yeah, you have to look uh, how in, 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 in 
in, in reality, you put in practice both principles. And I think here, Antoinette, this goes back to Fiske, right? The discussion we had on a, on a horizontal individualist model. And I think, Margaret, even Mary Parker Follett, right? So one of the ignored um, female wonderful economists from almost 120 years ago would have suggested that the capability of integration from the differentiation for autonomy to this mm -hmm. kind of reintegration for the corporate for the common good but also for corporate effectiveness is really what matters most and um, we were talking to carol sanford who mm -hmm. certainly would advocate that can ever only happen if we've got agency in every individual participant in the system mm -hmm. and secondly i say and i don't know Antoinette, how we would frame this but something that is almost like a willingness paul Aitler would say an ethos of participation and ethos of interdependence mm -hmm. to become trust, part of the common trust, of course, as well. trust mm -hmm. vulnerability yeah. to mutual power sort mm -hmm. of or mutualist uh, power mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so maybe so is structure enough or do we need to also kind of lighten up that really that spirit in the individual to realize there's some they're part of something greater so it, without mm -hmm. love can it ever work mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. If there is a common spirit in the company, then it was much, much easier to realize corporate uh, commons. Uh, that's, that's for sure. But, but uh, 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 common spirit is not so easy to create. The more differentiated uh, a company is, the more diverse it is, the, yeah, the less easy it is. We should realize that. Mm -hmm. And markets also play a role, don't forget that. <laughs> exactly. So we might need to revisit Williamson because this idea yeah. of the, the corporation's boundaries are determined by transaction costs, maybe that is really out of date. And we need to look at the corporate boundaries should be determined on our ability to create commons that are a subset of the good society, of the commons that transcend the boundaries of the organization. And if that capability is not there, we should probably tax organizations to to reconduce themselves to a meaningful size because they've one, lost one, a lot. One could think of a revival of transaction costs if you take in a physical, uh, 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 psychic costs and, and advantages, like mm -hmm. the Akalov uh, concept of identity costs or identity advantages. Wonderful idea. Which, which means there are other costs and, and advantages than only uh, in the form of money. And I think that's important. And many, many young people today, they love to work in a company where they are convinced of the products. That's nothing else than psychic, uh, psychological advantages. And, and they, I think if we, if we argue... They accept to earn less than, let me say, in, in another company. Yeah. And if you could, if we would be able to put that into transaction costs, then transaction costs economics is okay. <laughs> I would almost argue for trans transaction value. Yeah, that's okay. what I just if, wanted if to say. Suggest, if yes, we suggest, this, by the way, it even exists. And I find that the better theory because you also have to invest. It's not only a cost and that's very important. Yeah. And, and it goes yeah. back to Colin Meyer's point that organizations are such only ex ante by public fiat. And mm -hmm. if they don't contribute to the society that allows us to create them, then mm -hmm. they really shouldn't exist. And we should mm -hmm. probably tax the hell out of them. But again, um, Margaret, really nice. We will take this idea on board. I think, uh, Antoinette, that's a good one. Back to you. Okay. Um, 
yeah, I'm kind of still hammering on the same. You have also written about Wikipedia mm-hmm. and you have written about open source. Okay. These are no small, um, you know, com- they're no companies, but they're not small organizations. In, in a traditional way, they're mm-hmm. not even an organization. How does it function there? Because there is no hierarchy, I think, so in open source. Oh, that's oh I'm wrong. <laughs> That's, that's not true. That's not true. Unfortunately, in the beginning, uh, uh, Wikipedia as well as open source has less or nearly no hierarchy. But today in, in Wikipedia, there's a lot of uh, hierarchy. I, I have never contributed to Wikipedia, to be honest. But I, I, uh, I, some people tell me that you cannot post uh, anything there there is a, a strong hierarchy and that might be the reason why unfortunately uh, wikipedia doesn't function as well as it did in, maybe you have realized as i did mm-hmm. some articles are really not uh, not very uh, informative uh, and the reason might be that this kind of hierarchy today uh, doesn't motivate uh, people to contribute voluntarily as they did in, in, in the beginning. Um, okay, then unfortunately that example of a corporate commons company is not um, very helpful any longer. That brings us helpful. a little... It is helpful because it tells us yeah. that uh, to make people contribute voluntarily to yeah. such a big thing as Wikipedia yeah. is, uh, it must be uh, hierarchy must be uh, yeah must be dampened to, to to a very high degree. Of course, everybody accepts a certain kind of hierarchy. If you know this is a, a person who really knows about, but these kind of police they have installed nowadays, as Wikipedia people tell me, yeah, that's uh, that will be that will kill Wikipedia on the long run. And that, by the way, that's a very interesting example. Uh, I, I, I thank you that you uh, mentioned this uh, interesting issue. <laughs> and it almost reminds me, Antoinette, about what you mentioned to Henry Minsberg about prof- professional bureaucracies, which was one of the six archetypes that Henry was looking at. Whereas, of course, Henry would suggest we go to these newer versions of ad hocracy. Um, but I think in his mind, there's also a lot of contextuality in one sector, one context, a certain archetype might, might just work better, which brings me from Wikipedia to another very interesting um, analysis that I think, Margaret, you and Bruno have been working on, monasteries. Mm-hmm. What can we learn from the monks, if anything? Mm-hmm. Uh, first, we can learn that uh, that cloisters were a highly democratic society. Most people do not know. They they elect their uh, their um, yeah high ranked people, and this uh, this uh, let me say for two thousand years. That's uh, that's astonishing. That's absolutely great. That's the first thing. Uh, we should learn from from uh, from uh, monasteries. Second, uh, that uh, we would call it today corporate culture or corporate uh, sense making, uh, which is very important in monasteries, as it is in with Wikipedia uh, and 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 uh, and uh, 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 these uh, institutions. And the third one is that we have compared. 
two forms of corporate governance, so to say, in the Benedictine um, cloisters. Uh, which one works better? An abt, abbot who comes from outside the, the um, uh, monastery or an abbot who was elected from inside? And the interesting outcome of this research is inside, abbeys are the better ones. Uh, we measured is with, uh, on, with uh, the success of these monasteries in economic terms, by the way, if they were not successful in economic terms, they died. We know that they went bankruptcy. So uh, economics were very important. And uh, on average, the inside efforts were the better ones. The reason why is that the information asymmetry, which we talked uh, about former in, in companies, is reduced if you have an inside person, which does not mean that inside corporate directors are always the better ones because we know inside versus outside. Inside, there is less information asymmetry, but they are a little bit more, more independent, uh, a little bit more dependent. Outside directors, there is the information asymmetry bigger, but they are to a certain extent more independent. So that's a trade-off between these two principles. And in monasteries, obviously, it was the, the advantage of, of, uh, of less information asymmetry was, was dominating. So these are the three issues we find. And, and by the way, monasteries are such a special kind of organization. They are so special. They are so fascinating that even today there are young, young people who are devoted to this special kind of, of, of living. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, I remember another thing you were writing about, and we were also told when we used to have that seminars in cloisters, and that was this review. I found it very interesting, which makes it the review process. Like oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you for, for reminding us. Um, that in, in cloisters, there is a kind of external control named visitation. Uh, visitation means that an, an, an outside person from another cloister comes from time to time and, 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 and uh, exerting the kind of, of control so that inside businesses have less chance. That's a, thank you for that uh, uh, for mentioning that. That was very important for the functioning of the cloisters. <laughs> and I think the other thing, Antoinette, that we picked up with Simon Western was this idea of formation of monks, which then Bill Torbett also, I think, commented on in terms of becoming a leader seems to be much more of an experiential growth process in a community. And I mm -hmm. think Simon, Simon Western talked about um, finding the priest within so this mm -hmm. formation process was really like a crafting process that the, in the in, in monasteries people would go through, mm -hmm. uh, which sounds very diff different to our today's recruitment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very interesting point. Yes, we call that very technically input control, Margaret. Yeah. I think you also had a look at the input control very strongly. Input control, I'm... yes, and input development. Mm -hmm. So, um, shall we try a summary? Want you, do you want to I want to ask one more question to yeah, Okay. I want to go with the final question and then we go into the final 15 minutes and we will mm -hmm. focus a little bit on leadership in academia. Um, 
Actually, I wanted to ask you another thing, Margaret. You wrote about the curse of the Oscars, which I find is fascinating. I never heard about this. Yeah. But before that, I wanted to ask you, if you were the next appointed CEO, let's say in a company like Raiffeisen, yeah. what would be, you think, the most important leaders to create, sorry, leavers, the, the most important ways to create a good organization? What are the one, two, three things you would look at in, in trying to find out where you can potentially create a, a better business? To allow um, uh, the highest degree of diversity which is possible. We know um, diversity uh, is, is also, there are trade-offs. We can have too much diversity, then uh, a company will not function, but less diversity is, is the worst uh, thing. Uh, another way would be to install, uh, th this is an idea of Bruno, an advocatus diaboli. Uh, or uh, maybe we come to this later, uh, a, a lottery, which means that these are all kinds of mechanisms which allow hierarchies not to flower too much, which always dampens hierarchies because it tells people there are other things you should have in mind than your own meaning. Hybris is a really, really, really um, uh, high danger in companies and an avocados diaboli, diverse, uh, different uh, and diverse uh, uh, voices as well as, uh, as uh, lotteries are good, um, good um, uh, uh, institutions to dampen these hybrids. And it's, it's, it's really interesting, Antoinette, you remember Bill Torbett speaking about at the higher levels of maturity as a leader, you almost always, you need to find yourself a jester. You need to find yourself someone who's constantly contrarying and, and bringing you the different viewpoints so you're not becoming too convinced of yourself. And I think that's really the hubris idea, market mm. at both individual and collective level, I guess. Right? So you can mm. probably have both. Yeah. And uh, just for finishing us off, the, the, the curse of the Oscar, what, what, what is that? Oscar curse means that, that's, a, that's an issue in, in gender economics. And I'm uh, uh, dealing a lot with gender economics. And that means that uh, still today, there, is, um, there are preferences with men, but also with women, that uh, that men should be uh, the uh, should be um, the winners. Um, women who win in in uh, um, in competitions, in particular in male domains, they are not beloved. They lose. Uh, 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 yeah, they are sort of being uh, bitchy and so on. And this is also true. Uh, between couples. We have some statistical evidence that as soon as a wife earns more than 50% of the family income, then the divorce rate jumps up. We have uh, really some impressive evidence on that. And by the way, we are, this is evidence from the United States. And at the moment, an, an assistant of mine tries to find out whether this is true also in Switzerland mm -hmm. and whether uh, there are differences between more conservative and less conservative uh, cantons. So it could have to do something with a uh, with, uh, conservative uh, mindset. And that's the issue. Uh, or, or the origin was that uh, uh, 
it was found out that if a lady, um, a woman has won the Oscar prize, she was much more, uh, the percentage of being divorced was much higher than when a man earned, mm-hmm. won an Oscar prize. And that gave the whole thing the name, Oscar's curse, that uh, as, as soon as in a relationship, the woman is more successful than the man in different uh, dimensions, then uh, there is uh, some danger. And I think, and, and, and what I'm, and uh, let's summarize and go to the final section, but uh, Margit, I was just reading uh, actually an essay about research um, methodologies yeah. where someone was taking an, an interpretivist, interpretivist symbolic uh, yeah. stance. And he yeah. was suggesting that if we forget about the symbolic connotations of communication, communication and how we interpret the world, we might miss a very important piece. And I think there is nothing more symbolic than this Oscar prize. So I think there's a lot of symbolism embedded yeah. in how we, how yeah. we interpret our world. But it, it still tells us that even today, uh, gender stereotypes are so strong that one cannot believe. And the, and, the, and the bad thing is, as I told in the beginning, we have empirical evidence that uh, uh, with the wealth of the nations and with the development of the countries, these stereotypes don't, they they even, uh, the gap between the stereotypes becomes bigger, not smaller. That's the sad thing, but that's the case. Incredible. Antoinette, summary. (laughs) Yeah, great. I just um, was kind of guessing it could have something to do with this very, very difficult development we're also tackling with. Mm -hmm. Leadership development, if that is possible at all, which um, just means that kind of the maturation Uh we have also um, very early talked about Uh is maybe getting even more difficult. And it has something to do with something you were saying, this learning from this confirmation, the ability to confront social problems. That might be more difficult today than it used to be because we're so used to consumerism, hedonic treadmill and all that kind of thing. So we have to take it, um, I think, very serious what you were saying, how organizations would have to look like. Mm -hmm. And what I take um, from it is clearly that you say, well, if we want, if, if this is a large company, we need, of course, decentralization because this enables at least self-determinations if, uh, that enables to give power where power needs to be, that enables local learning, but we still have the integration problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the integration problem, we might turn to hierarchy because that's still an efficient solution. We might also turn to sociocracy, which you mentioned. Um, and you were a little bit skeptic whether there are so much more abilities as long as companies are still um, so big. And I think I just want to bring in, in addition, um, what we just discussed in the end. Um, should we also get better in this um, handling conflicts, which is, of course, also apparent if we have diversity? And what would we need to learn for organizations in order to be also offering challenge and not only harmony, which we also seem to be um, needing. Now I was going way beyond probably because my mind was kind of... Being and, and I think we, we will need to go to the final <laughs> section. I will take from, from this... Um, I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground, Margit. Thank you very much. Um, boards, we talked about boards, different forms of boards. And I think, Antoinette, one for us to look at. Margit, you mentioned the co-determination model. 
I think Antoinette, Alex Edmonds from London Business School would have a more skeptical perspective on um, co-determination. I think also with Paul Adler, we will talk about union representation. So I think we need to dig a little bit into this. Mm-hmm. Um, we then looked at organizational forms. And I think Antoinette, you already um, brought it all in. I think this random sortition and random selection mm-hmm. and how to generally avoid hubris is certainly something I'm taking away. Mm-hmm. Um, cloisters, super interesting. I think we will talk to someone, uh, maybe if uh, Stefano uh, Zamani is helping us. And corporate commons, I think this for me is still one of the most important concepts and mm-hmm. the idea to revise Williamson I find very appealing. So I think um, that might be some, some further research to be done. <laughs> and I think if that's an okay uh, segue, I would suggest final section. We wanted to talk about leadership and I'll and, 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 and transformation. And I would almost suggest, um, we have 10 minutes. I would almost suggest, Antoinette, we focus on education because I know, Margaret, you've written, you've written critically about education. Um, so again, as usual, Antoinette, do you want to kick us off here? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm very glad that you were always very outspoken about the flaws of academia and um, probably also even more so for business schools, and you have been trying to reform it for the last 30 years. Um, but I was, would like to start with a more general question. What do you believe at present are the biggest obstacles that academia is really kind of um, contributing more to what companies and society really need to learn and to get further? To say it very short, rankings. I think uh, rankings, academic rankings, is a thing which contradicts fundamentally to the idea of of scholarly work. Uh, To say it very simple, because ranking reduces scientific work to counting and and academic work should be on arguing. So that's quite the contrary. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, to be be more in detail, rankings, they, uh, the, uh, the effect of rankings is that uh, people are more extrinsic, uh, extrinsically motivated because they look at the ranking position and they uh, look less on, on the contents. And I think that's a big, big, big uh, failure of our academic uh, uh, system today. Yeah. And is there and another... Oh, sorry, I'm too gone. No, go ahead. Okay. I no. wanted to connect it with... Uh, you remember our conversation about healthcare management with Henry. Mm-hmm. Um, and Margaret, I'm wondering, is there not a wider issue with, I think it's called public management, right? Mm-hmm. So this notion that public institutions, public. If mm-hmm. I, I, do I get this right? I don't know. Public what management is. probably, yeah. Public yeah. management. That institutions, which include universities, but also, for example, healthcare mm-hmm. provided, providers have to be managed based on efficiency metrics and um, even profit metrics. Mm-hmm. It's, it's another wider connotation that certain things should not be run like a business because that's really not what their value creation is about. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a bit in between. Of course, also hospitals must be managed in an efficient way. And accounting is uh, efficient is, is necessary also for hospitals. But uh, hospitals, uh, uh, public hosp- uh, uh, hospitals, 
or not all hospitals could be managed in, 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 in a way like profit-oriented uh, companies. That's for sure. Uh, you can compare, for example, university hospital uh, on the one hand and private hospitals on the other hand, which means that in the private hospitals, they don't take the really severe cases because uh, they don't bring too much money. And so the division between private hospitals on the one hand for the people who can afford a private room with a with a five-star hotel service is quite okay. And these kind of hospitals, they should make profits and the health London, for example, and maybe they make profits. But on the other hand, a university hospital cannot be run like a company, that's for sure. But they should have an accounting department which tells them that efficiency sometimes could be improved. Yeah, I think Henry came up with the um, necessity for efficiency, but I think he summarized it as uh, care over cure. So the, the necessity and then I think community over control. So that those were his stances. Yeah, yes, I, I, would, I would agree. I would agree fully. I would agree fully. But and what about so in the business school? What is that not the same? And I recall being a London business school alumni. I recall that in 2007 or so, the, the, the slogan of London business school was to become the preeminent business school in the world. Right. So it's like the notion of we would, we just want to be the best, whatever. And mm -hmm. it changed over the years to something, um, changing the way the world does business. So much more focused on the quality of business in, 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 in organizations. Mm -hmm. But I think the, there is a trend in, in business schools in general to be money earning over necessarily being good in, in, in an ethical sense. Well, it's interesting that, for example, the Harvard Business School, of course, is, 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 uh, they make profits, but uh, they can afford a lot of scholars uh, uh, because they have such a high reputation and, and they are funded uh, to such a high degree. Uh, the same is true for Oxford uh, and, and not other... Not in the rankings. They're not in the rankings. So in the end, maybe you're, um, you are right in your analysis. They have taken themselves out and say, we have our own standards and we still kind of try to think as well but I, I i want to drill down uh, more is it really only the rankings i mean otti now went to other um, possible drivers as well but i mean i'm hearing you said research is not relevant any longer so we don't produce anything which is of um, knowledge or or producing wisdom for practice mm -hmm. i think we have very few uh, academics who or like intellectuals like you who are really jacques that's also something i don't see very often and uh, there's also very few transdisciplinary research so yeah. it has, is this only ranking or do we need to even look for further reasons and then also of course solutions to make academia better for the common good again rankings are connected with status rankings create status and Status are kill kill uh, argumentation. So another issue which is linked to status uh, question is that in most countries, with the exception of uh, of Switzerland, we have too much so-called academics. Uh, you know that in 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 Germany, you have more uh, 
um, students uh, at un universities and, and uh, uh, then uh, uh, in an apprenticeship. Switzerland, fortunately, is, uh, is different. We have only 35% of, uh, of an age cohort um, going on a university and Fachhochschule and uh, the rest is doing an apprenticeship. And I think this is, this is because apprenticeship and doing a job like this has a high status in Switzerland, but it doesn't have a high status, for example, in France or, mm -hmm. or, or Spain or in Italy. Why? Because they don't have the system of apprenticeship, which gives you, which gives you a, high, a relative high prestige without being an academic. And I think most universities today suffer from, from that everybody wants to have an academic degree, which is not real an academic degree, and they don't need to have an academic degree. So you and I, we know that they're sitting, a lot of uh, boys and girls sitting in, in the floor who are not really interested in, in scholarship. And, that, and that's, that's an indirect consequence of the rankings because rankings give status and status. Yeah, that's my argumentation. And it's connected, of course, with the, with the Bologna process, which also uh, presses you to, to count uh, yeah, points. So we look for the wrong places. We should look for our applied universities. We should look for the uh, professional bodies who work with this apprentice mm -hmm. because there we really also have actionable knowledge and it's embedded into practice. That's what I'm hearing here. That's exactly. I thought I'm in the University Council of University Erlangen Nürnberg and they recently introduced uh, an academic bachelor for hebammen. What is hebammen in English? No, no, what's a hebammen? It's not a nursing woman, it's a midwife. A, a midwife, an academic degree for midwives. Uh, and and I, I fought fiercely, but I didn't succeed. And the other uh, uh, yeah, a colleague who fought with me, he told what will happen. The midwives now will sit in an office on a white desk and in 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 the in the in the uh, Kreisal, there's it uh, uh, people who have yeah who, who don't have a good education, good practical education, and what are they do? Seize and seize as uh, as much as they can because they cannot manage manage it, uh, it better. So this is a crazy system, which is forced by the EU, by the way, yeah. enforced by the EU. Yeah. Yeah, that was very interesting and would lead us in, into another Aristotelian uh, discussion. But um, because time is running out, yeah. I think Otti um, is going to do a lightning round with you, if I'm correct. The final <laughs> quiz. But firstly, Margaret, it was, it was a sublime pleasure. Thanks for making time for us. And as anticipated and as, as hoped for, such a great wide-ranging conversation. It was very, very enjoyable. Thank you. And as always, we want to close us out. Mm. In, in psychology and in coaching, we say there always has to be closure. So our closure is a quick one-minute quiz. Mm. Where we, we will just uh, throw a few things at you for a short reaction, whatever comes to your mind. And I want to add one, which um, we wanted to ask Henry, but forgot. And I think you're the perfect person to answer it. So CEO multiples. I think Paul Adler in his book, uh, The 99% Economy, suggests that in the 
90 is the average multiple CEO pay for the top 100 organizations in America was around 400 times. In mm-hmm. the last 10 years, it was about 1,000 times. Mm-hmm. Um, in Mondragon, I think the limit is 10 times for any role. And uh, Antoinette was suggesting that maybe CEOs should be paid even less than a one-time multiple because they're having most fun, as uh, research tells us. So what is the ideal CEO pay multiple from your perspective? I would, I would look at a procedural uh, uh, way. And that means, for example, if CEOs are selected by lot, then it is quite sure that the multiple would be probably not greater than, than 10 to 20 because uh, this would, the hierarchy would be changed completely with such a system. You can't. Wonderful. 10 to 20, I yeah. take that. Antoinette, we certainly yeah. got to quote you on this one, Mark. But this is an outcome of a process, yeah. not of an exante decision. Absolutely. No, I think that is very clear, the procedural fairness. Um, to learn more about the good life, I would prefer to meet the Pope, fly in a rocket with Elon Musk towards Mars, or spend a year traveling, or anything else? Nothing. None of the above. Nothing. (laughs) Good good societies need good leaders, good rules, and I will add procedures based on what you said, or good citizens, or anything else. Good rules, good procedures, that's quite sure. (laughs) Good procedures and rules, very interesting. Yes. We got some philosophers on the list. Immanuel Kant, John Rawls, or John Stuart Mill? Of course, Kant. Of course, Kant. <laughs> lottery or meritocracy? Yeah, of course, uh, lottery. <laughs> you have to go with lottery on this one, otherwise uh, we would course, be very disappointed. Um, I won't ask about, actually I will, a European, an Asian, or a US model? Where's your uh, heart? I prefer to live in Europe. <laughs> Europe. And then that leads me to my next question. Switzerland or Germany? Switzerland. 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 We will bring this back to our German colleagues. And finally, if I had a magic wand and I could do one thing to change the world, what would you do? So I have I have realized that question I've written is the following. In former times, although liberal economist uh, Franz Brühm, he told us competition is the most ingenious instrument for disempowerment. Today, I would say, as in ancient Athens, focal lotteries are the most ingenious instruments for disempowerment. Wonderful. I mean, <laughs> we couldn't close it better. So, nothing remains. Antoinette, final words to you? No, I'm just happy. It was very, very interesting, as, as I thought it would be. And, and thank you very much. Really, it was very, very nice. It was a great fun for me. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to think about uh, yeah, what is important in my life. That's a great uh, occasion. <laughs> Wonderful. We, we did a big tour as well. And, uh, amazing over the time. Yeah. And Thank with you. that, we close. Thank you very much. Thanks also to the listeners and speak to you again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for my Bye-bye.